You are God, and we are incredibly mindful of the fact that every week when we gather, we gather for spiritual war. God, it rages around us. And in a week like this, we're about to embark on this series. We're mindful that the enemy will attack to an even greater degree and extent. And so God, as only you can, we pray that you would guide us. Jesus, by your accomplished work and shed blood, would you protect us? Would you grant us even angels who would surround us, who would battle the demonic during these sessions and seasons? God, for each of us, as we may find in these moments that we face a greater level or degree of temptation, may we rely on you as we need you. And so God, we pray that you would remind us through this series, Jesus, that you are victorious and that your accomplished work is indeed enough. We pray this in the powerful, resurrected name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. From Colossians 2, you have already heard it read this morning, for in Christ, verse 9, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. You've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your heart, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave your sin. He canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing them, triumphing over them, sorry, by the cross. That is the word of the Lord. If you found yourself this week in the fight of your life, you're walking down the street and someone actually attacked you. Not for your faith, this isn't persecution, this is someone actually attacking you. And you knew in that moment, they've got a weapon of some sort, a knife, that your life could be over. How hard would you fight? How hard would you fight? Would you just say, take me? Or would you do everything you can in that moment to battle the person who is attacking you? I'll get to this later this morning, but Satan has lost and he knows it. And he knows he's going down. He actually knows he's going to be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. He knows how this is going to end now. But he is not going down without a fight. And he longs to, make, to take as many people with him in this fight. For some of you who have been at the church a long time, as, I was, as we were singing, I glanced back and I saw Nigel and Natalie. And uh, they've been here as long as I have. So you've heard this sermon series three times. This is the third time I'm doing it. And over almost 28 years, this has been an important series for us. The notes I wrote today, I didn't look at my old notes, I just rewrote them. I just thought, I read four books in the last month and, and uh, wanted to really be as fresh as I could be on this. Um, but I know for some of you, you're like, well, this is the second time I've heard this, this is the third time I've heard this, and for some, this is the first time you've heard it. But understanding the war we're in that surrounds us is incredibly important. Let me offer you four principles as I start. And if you don't get our sermon notes, you can say to the office, I want Dwayne's sermon notes, because through these weeks on spiritual warfare, there's going to be a lot of passages I'm walking through. 
There's going to be a lot of material I'm going through, very different than when we went through Acts, and I just kind of walked verse by verse the whole book of Acts the whole last year. This will have an array of verses over the next uh, several weeks, the next five weeks. But four things that I think are important. One, you need to be obsessed with God, not with Satan. You need to be obsessed with God, not with Satan. Some people, as we begin to engage in a conversation and a series on spiritual warfare, can be overly obsessed with the enemy and overly obsessed with the demonic. And your obsession needs to be with God and needs to be with him. He is the one we focus on. Number two, it's critical to remember that Christ is victorious. Christ has indeed been raised to life again, and he indeed is victorious. He is the victor. Number three, that Satan is powerful. That he actually is a powerful being, an angelic being who's fallen, and he is powerful. And four, God has equipped us for this battle. God has actually equipped us for this battle. So today we're going to take a look at Christ's victorious work, and then next week we're going to take a look at Satan and the demonic. The week after, we're actually going to take a look at demonization uh, and talk about that. The following week, angelology, we're going to talk about angels. Then there's a break for one week because Sam Alvary will be with us, um, international speaker that we have the privilege of having with us that Sunday. And then after that week, I'll, I'll, final, I'll finish the series with the full armor of God. And then through the series, on Sunday nights, we have a study for those that want to join us from 7 to 9. You can skip my nights, uh, but you got a QR cord, a card coming in today. And so next week, John Thompson will be with us. John, pastor Sanctus Church in the Toronto area. He's a good friend of mine. We've had some great conversations the last couple of weeks. He's going to meet with the elders ahead of time uh, to just and the staff uh, just to talk about some of what this looks like. And I mean, I'm just going to give you... Two quick experiences with John. I've had more than two experiences, but literally 17 years ago, I'm speaking at an event with a thousand youth, and I get there on Friday afternoon, and John comes to me and says, we've been praying room by room for every name that's coming to the conference. A thousand kids! And they've spent the whole day praying for every room. And he says, tomorrow night when you give the altar call for those that want to come to faith in Christ, we want you to give two altar calls. One for every kid that would like to come to faith in Christ. The other, God's given us a list of 18 names of students here who we believe he's going to call into full-time vocational ministry. So can you also give an altar call for those going into full-time vocational ministry? Like, sure. So the next night, I do both those altar calls. I walk in the room for the kids that want to know who Christ is or recommit their lives, and there's a bunch of kids in there. And I walk into the other room. There were 18 names. 24 people are in the other room. They had written the names of the kids on the board and covered it up. And we uncovered it. All 18 of those kids were in that room out of 1,000. I was like, all right, John, now I'm a little scared, but I'm okay. Right? And then I, I preached at his church a few times. And so, and so uh, uh, oh, wait, I won't, I won't do that story. There was a great story about that too. But, but I, we were both preaching at a conference together. Um, there were three of us they had brought in for a Friday night, Saturday, Sunday conference in Toronto. And uh, for, I can't remember what it was called, the Toronto conference. That's not what it was called, but something. And so I was Friday night, he was Saturday night. So Friday night, after everyone leaves, hundreds of people leave the building, sound and tech people are there, and there's a woman talking to me about her demonization, right? And about how every time someone prays for her, she manifests and what this looks like. And I'm like, okay, listen, it's not that I don't believe you, but I would just like to pray for you, right? There's people in the room. And so I begin to pray for her. Her eyes roll right back. Her voice drops several octaves. 
she has a strength that is something I cannot comprehend, and I realize that there is demonic going on right here. And so I call out to the sound guys who are watching this. They're like 18 years old at the booth, and their mouths have just dropped wide open, and they're not exactly sure what to do. And so, and so while they're there, I just say, hey, if you could go and find any pastor in this building and just bring them into the room, that would be really helpful. So they go running out. They go find uh, some of the guys that are still there that night. They come back in, and we just shut the whole thing down. And I say, this is something beyond my skill set, I think, to deal with. But John's coming tomorrow night. And I said, if you could come back tomorrow night, I'm going to text John and tell him that I've left a present for him for tomorrow night. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I texted John. and said, John, I got a gift for you tomorrow night. And John's like, hey, like this is like Friday night now at 1030 or something. Like I'm in the parking lot. He's like, what kind of a gift? I said, you're going to love it. Um, and, uh, and so uh, John came back the next night. She stayed and waited and talked to him and he brought her through with their team, some deliverance ministry. I saw her, man, it was a year and a half ago when I was speaking at People's Church Toronto because that's where she's worshiping now. This is like three years later, in her right mind, with no form of, 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 of um, demonization within her. And so John Thompson's coming next Sunday night. And then the week after, I have my friend John Mahaffey coming, and there's a number of occasions over the years where when we've been struggling with stuff here, we've called on John to come and to talk, so he's coming that Sunday night as well. John was in the Philippines for a number of years where he dealt with this, and then he was here in Canada. He's dealt with this both at Morningstar in Toronto and at West Highland and formed a team of people to work with this at West Highland, and, and uh, he's assisted us on a number of occasions, Pastor Paul and I and others, with some of their prayer team. And then that, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I was preaching at their church at their 50th anniversary, and after the service, a young man came and spoke to me, and I could just tell right away that there was demonization going on. I mean, the Lord just said to me, there's, like, this is serious. And I could tell it was more than one demon. And so he and I are engaged in the conversation, and uh, he leaves, and I, John comes up, I'm like, John. He's like, no, no, I know. I'm like, oh, you know. He's like, yeah, yeah, we've already been meeting with him. There's 16 demons. I'm like, okay, as long as you know, it's all yours. I'm done now. That's... So John's coming, because John's the guy I turn to when I'm, when I'm needing help in Hamilton and saying I could use some assistance. And then the last week, uh, Sue Montgomery, who's a good friend, uh, and is part of the prayer ministry up at West Highland, and uh, Dr. Lorna Yunker anderson who happens to be with us this morning. Didn't know you were going to be here, Lorna. Good to have you. Um, they'll be here, and uh, she worked for years in the ER and then in, now in palliative care, is that right? And, and specializes uh, in prayer ministry and some things around spiritual formation, and they'll be with us that last week to talk a bit about entry points and prayer uh, in spiritual warfare. And so... On those, you don't have to come tonight because I'm leading it. But these other three nights, if you're around, I encourage you to come and to just hear what God, how he equips us and how he uses us. So that's just a kind of a bit of an outlier of the series and where we're heading, both Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. So what do we do when we read a passage like Colossians and it doesn't always feel like God's victorious? It doesn't always feel like he's won the way that the Bible describes as winning. And we can talk about the fact that it's a, a present reality and yet not fully realized reality, which is true, of course, that there's something that has happened but will be realized in its fullness. But sometimes as we walk through life, we struggle with this. We, we agonize over what to do. I mean, if you were at any of the fall fairs this fall and you just looked around, what was available at almost all the fall fairs you could go to? Tarot card readings, right? Crystal ball, all kinds of stuff. 
that are just there and available for you to be able to partake in and be a part of. I mean, this month, what's happening, right? Movies, all kinds of movies coming out about gore and Halloween and demonic and what that looks like. I mean, our culture has an infatuation with this. In fact, last night I was speaking at an event in Cambridge and maybe 9.30 I was driving back home and as I got off the 403 into Hamilton, it looked like the zombie apocalypse in downtown Hamilton. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I'm in Westdale, and I thought, it's not finals, so the students aren't, like, you know, doped up for finals. It's like, like what's happening here? Because they just looked awful, and all of a sudden I realized, it's Halloween. And it's a couple of weeks before Halloween, but they were just dressed like, like the zombie apocalypse. I'm like, wow, this is, like, craziness. Do they not know Halloween's not for two more weeks? But there's a fascination with the occult. There's a fascination with the demonic. Now, so for some of us, we come to the place where we think, man, it's easier for me to believe in God, but Satan? To actually believe in this being, like Satan, Dwayne, really? But I, I don't believe you can believe in God without believing in Satan. Because we know that the evil that we face is more than just evil from humanity, that there's an actual evil network, there's an evil mastermind behind some of the evil in the world. When you think of Russia and Ukraine and the war that's there, it's not just power and greed. There's an evil presence within this. When you think of the ideology of our world, whether it's, it's, it's around the possibility of us being able to exist without a prime mover so that God can be set aside and outside of any form of equation, or whether it's about gender and sexuality, all of a sudden you realize as you hear these things, man, it's more than just progressive thinking. There's actually an evil behind all of this. When you think of your own struggles in your own life and some sins, besetting sins, if you will, that you seem to struggle with day in and day out or week in and week out or month in or month out, year after year, like, Lord, why isn't there victory here? And it's not just a lack of self-discipline. It's not, it's, not, it's not just a lack of self-restraint. It's actually a force that you know that you face in this spiritual battle that you're in. And so as we engage in this series, we need to be mindful of those things. Now, I want you to know a couple things. One, at the onset of this, God had a plan, but no one understood it. God had a plan. No one understood God's plan. You hear this in 1 Corinthians 2. We do, Paul says, however, speak a message of wisdom amongst the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God's plan was through weakness and humility and service. And he says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. Now, when he's speaking of the rulers of this age, he's not talking about Herod. He's talking about Satan and the demonic. I mean, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is called the small g God of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, he's called the prince of this world. I'll get to more of this next week. In Ephesians 6, right, our war is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers. The word is used there, authorities and power. So the term rulers is used a number of times in Scripture for the demonic. And here he's saying they wouldn't have killed him if they understood what they were doing. They wouldn't have executed them, him had they understood this. From the beginning, there's promise. We read this this morning. This is from the book of Genesis. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock 
and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So from the seed of the woman, there's a promise of a Messiah. This is the first messianic promise that one day Christ will come. One day Messiah will come, that through the line of woman, someone will come who will be able to deal with the serpent. And though the serpent will strike at his heel and offer some form of, uh, of damage, if you will, or of injury, he will actually crush his head decisively. So you find this. That's why the genealogies of Scripture are so important as they trace back the lineage of Christ, fully God, fully human. But then you hear about the battle ensued in all three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's not synoptic. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first time you see Satan is where? Where he actually shows up at his temptation right after his baptism. Listen. So this is from Matthew 3. You can find the account in Mark or Luke as well. Then Jesus, after Jesus, or he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil... After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 3. So one, note, he's led by the Spirit to be tempted. Note, uh, two, that it's for 40 days and 40 significant in Scripture, 40 days of rain, 40 years in the wilderness. So 40 is significant in Scripture as a number. This happens right after his baptism. Right after this high point in Jesus' life, Satan attacks So it shouldn't surprise us that Satan will attack us after we've just experienced a great moment with God, a great conference, a great segment of worship, a great, I mean, some Christians I talk to face their greatest moment of temptation and falling into that temptation right after this incredible high, right? Where they've been, they've been a part of something, they've been part of a conference or, or, or just had a rich devotional time with the Lord one morning. And then that, that day later on, just everything wreaks havoc. Why? Because the, Satan, who's the tempter, strategy doesn't change over time. He's not that, he, he, I mean, he, he's not that creative. He is cunning. But it's the same. So he comes at Jesus right after. Now, what was particular about the baptism? One, when Jesus asked John to baptize him, what does John say? John says, I need to be baptized by you. But you want to baptize me. And Jesus says, this needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness. What's he saying? Jesus doesn't need to be baptized for his sin. He's sinless. So probably two things are going on here. The first is this. He's likely saying, I want to show everyone that I associate with you, John, that what you are talking about and what I am talking about, there's an alignment. But this is also, I believe, the first picture we have of what it means that Christ in fulfilling all righteousness will be our perfect representative. That he who will become sin on the cross for us so that we can become his righteousness, this is part of the fulfilling of all righteousness. That Jesus is showing what it means that he will perfectly take our place. So though he doesn't need to be baptized for his sin because he's sinless, He believes, I believe in this moment, in authenticating who he is as part of the kingdom, he's baptized for our sin, that he'll one day take upon himself on the cross. That's why he says, I think, that I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness, to show you what it means that I will be your substitute. 
And then these words are spoken over him by the Father. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And Keller says this, and I really appreciate this. We move here from spiritual baptism to spiritual battle. We move from the voice of heaven to a voice from hell. So listen to this, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you have three temptations. The temptation of satisfaction, or if you will, the senses. The second temptation is the temptation of privilege. The third one is the temptation of power. So here, the temptation of satisfaction. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and nights. Of course he is hungry. Notice, the words have just been spoken over him. This is my son. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And what does the tempter say? If, if you're the son of God, because Satan always wants to cast doubt, right? I'll get to this next week. But the Garden of Eden, did God really say? Did God really say this, Eve? Did God really say this? He always wants to cast doubt. So here for Jesus himself, if you are the Son of God, man, command these stones to be bread. Satisfy your senses, Jesus. Satisfy what you need. And Jesus' response in quoting scripture, we'll get to that when we get to the armament of Christ, or armament of God for us. That man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God is saying, I need to be satisfied in my Father and not in anything else. The second temptation is that of privilege. And the devil, verse 5, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command the angels concerning you, his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. What Satan is saying here is, Jesus, there's no need for you to go through pain. There's no need for you to suffer. Just cast yourself down. The angels will lift you up. There's another way. You don't need to go through the pain and agony of the cross. And so he tempts him with privilege. Jesus, just show everybody who you are. Jesus, if you're the son of God, do this. And again, Jesus replies, quoting scripture. The last one is power. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all their splendor. He says, I'll give this to you. If you bow down and worship me, Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Satan says, I'll give you anything you want, anything you want, if you give me your allegiance. He feels like he has some authority. He's called the prince of the world. He's called the ruler of the world, small r, small p. He's called the god of this age. So he has some power, some authority. And Jesus here who gave up privilege and power when he cloaked his deity with humanity and shows up, taking the very likeness of us, submitting to death, even death on a cross, knows who he's to worship. And so he quotes it to him, that he's to worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. 
He's reminded of the first commandment, to have no other gods before him, and he tells Satan to be gone. So right in the beginning of the ministry of Christ, right after his baptism, right in the inaugural phase, you have Satan and Jesus going toe-to-toe. You have Satan showing up saying, you're not going to win. But in the desert, Christ is victorious. Now Jesus talks about his coming victory. I want you to hear these passages. There's, there's way more than this, but I want you to at least hear these. I've got three or four. Um, from Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. I got it. It's loose. Uh, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning. No, but I'll get it. I think it's this, right? Yeah, no, okay, all right. So the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He gave me the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus here has set the 72 out. They're able to even command the demons. And they say this, Lord, the demons submit to us. And Jesus says, I see Satan falling like lightning out of heaven. What's happening? I I don't believe this is Jesus looking back to something that previously happened or looking forward to something that will happen. I believe he's saying in this moment, look, God's kingdom is breaking in. Look, God's kingdom is advancing. Look, as you're going out, I have seen Satan falling. As you're going out, I'm witnessing him falling. There's other passages I'll look at in Scripture that will talk about his fall. But in this moment, I believe this fall is referring to the fact that as the power of the kingdom of God is moving forward and advancing, Satan's dominion is shrinking, and he knows it. Clinton Arnold says this, I quote, This image does not refer to an ecstatic vision that Jesus had of Satan's fall from heaven either in the past, his initial rebellion, or in the future, either at the cross or at Jesus' second coming. Jesus is revealing how, aggressive, uh, how their aggressive confrontation with Satan's kingdom was meeting with victory over Satan's power and influence. Mark 3, something similar. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Just pause there for a moment. And these moments in scripture, Jesus is being accused of being on Satan's side. And he's been told, you're driving Satan out because you're with Satan. And Jesus says, what? Really? Are you even thinking about that logically? Like, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot fall. That house cannot stand. Sorry. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So he's saying, I'm here. Satan's the strong man. I'm going to tie him up so I can plunder his house. John 12 says this. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Again, John 16. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. 
about judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. So in Genesis, you have this promise that one day Messiah will come. At his temptation, you have Jesus defeating Satan in that moment. Through his ministry, the ministry of Christ, you have the promise and you see the taking of ground from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of light. And you see the promise of his coming ultimate defeat. So that after Christ has died and been raised to life again, you hear these words in Ephesians 1. So I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened or enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've called and the glorious riches, the, sorry, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So what does Paul say? I want your eyes to be open to your hope. Isn't that what we need right now? Hope. I want your eyes to be open to your hope because it's way beyond you. And he says, I want you to know two things about your hope. One, it's the riches of his glorious inheritance for all of his, all of his holy people. It's your inheritance. The hope God's granting you is guaranteed for you as an inheritance. And your inheritance is guaranteed, verse 19, by his incomparably great power. And that power, he says in verse 19, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. If you want to know about the power I'm talking about, it's the same power that raised Jesus to life again and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, any name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. Not only now, but later. What's Paul saying? There's no demon, not Satan himself. There's no spiritual being, no small G God anywhere in this universe whose name can be invoked by anyone else, by any non-believer anywhere else on the planet that has a greater authority than Jesus Christ the Lord. Is that not good news? There's no one anywhere whose names can be invoked. When, when we were going through Acts, what did I say time and time again? Luke is writing Acts historically because it's true. And he's accounting for you people and places and times. At times as he's sitting with the apostles and he's hearing what they did, and at times as he's traveling with him when we look through the wee passages of Acts. And he's doing so to let us know that Christianity can stand up to any ideology, any philosophy, anywhere in the world. That we don't need to be on the retreat. That what he's writing is historically accurate and true. And so Paul's doing the same thing right here. As he's writing in Ephesians, he's saying, I want you to know, there is not a name anyone, anywhere on the planet can invoke in any way that can impede the supreme rule and authority of Jesus Christ the Lord. Is that not great news? And so as we study and take a look at Satan and the demonic and demonization, that is our greatest principle, that we're obsessed with God and not with the enemy. Though we want to understand him and understand 
who he is and how he combats us because Christ is the victor. So then back to Colossians 2. For in Christ all the fullness of deity now lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God you made, made you alive with Christ. He forgave you all your sin. Is that not great news? He canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness. All the times we've broken God's law, he paid for on the cross, and he writes on our bill due to God, canceled. Is that not great? Canceled. He's paid, paid in full. Paid in full. That legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken away. He nailed it to the cross. And then he's disarmed the powers and authorities that he made public spectacle of them by triumphing them over them, sorry, by the cross. By the cross. Clinton Arnold says this, listen to this. The resurrection demonstrated that even death could not be victorious over Christ. The strongest weapon in Satan's arsenal was not sufficient for conquering Christ. Neither will it prove sufficient for destroying his people. What a great God. The worst Satan had, the greatest armament that he had, his greatest weapon was death. And he threw it at Jesus. He took death and he threw it at him. And our Savior gave his life up on the cross. But three days later, he was raised to life again. Here's what I believe. Because Satan is about power and about prestige, about privilege, and about success, or if you will, about senses even, and sensuality. He couldn't comprehend a plan where the most powerful being in the universe would choose to cloak his deity with humanity and incarnate himself in a woman's womb and be born. Or he, the one who spoke things into existence, Colossians says that too, things have been created by him and for him, would become that vulnerable, fully human, fully God would have to have his diapers changed, would have to be fed and burped. He couldn't comprehend a plan like this. He couldn't comprehend a plan that he would live this sinless life and be able to do so perfectly. A plan where even when he would come with full force out of him in the desert, he wouldn't be able to be victorious over this incarnated God. He couldn't comprehend a plan where he wouldn't just flex a bit more God muscle here and there Annihilate the odd enemy now and then. But he doesn't. He teaches with authority. He casts out demons. He miraculously heals people. He struggles through suffering at times. Hungry, tired, exhausted, expending energy, needing to be refueled by the Father. And in no way could he comprehend a plan where this incarnated God would at the end of his life choose to give it up. He was convinced at the cross that he was winning. He was convinced at the cross that he was in charge. He was convinced at the cross that he would be victorious. He couldn't comprehend a God that he couldn't kill. That at the end in John 19, what does it say? When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he then bowed his head and he gave up his spirit because no one could take his spirit from him and the enemy could not conceive that this could be the plan to save humanity. But in God's brilliance, the power of God is shown in weakness. 
The strength of God is shown through humility. And he takes our sin upon himself on the cross. And Satan thinks he's won. But three days later, by the power of the Father, the Son is risen to life again. And given power and authority over every ruler, every power, every authority, everywhere. Because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And when you believe on him, when you've trusted in his name, he, God himself, is on your side. Is that not great news? But Satan in no way could comprehend this. In no way could understand it. He thought he'd won. And in his utter idiocy of thinking he won, Jesus triumphed over him on a cross. Praise his name. I believe then he descended into hell not to be punished as Peter, uh, Peter and, and Ephesians talked about him descending. I think the Ephesian passage is actually a bit different, but the, the Peter one, he, I believe he's descending only to declare that he's victorious, which is why he says the thief on the cross, the criminal on the cross, he wasn't a thief, criminal. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Andrew, you guys can come up. But this is whom we believed in. This is whom we trusted. This is Jesus the Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who will one day return. The trump will sound, the cloud will part, he will descend. And when he does, he will take his enemy, Satan, with all of the demonic realm, and he will cast them into the lake of burning sulfur forever. He will then take death itself, all disease, and sin and vanquish us and vanquish them. And, and he will enter into a place that we will get to enjoy forever in the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no sin, where you will never be tempted again. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I'm so sinful. I can't even imagine being in a place where there is no sin, where temptation will never come my way again. Well, I'll never hear that anyone's sick ever again. Where we will just simply enjoy the goodness and grace of God forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because Jesus is the victor over every authority, ruler, and power. Any name anyone can invoke. And he's reigning now and forevermore. So I don't know where you're at today, but maybe you're sitting here and you've heard this and you're like, man, Dwayne, I want to believe that. I really do. I haven't crossed that line of faith yet, and I want to believe that Jesus is the victor. Do you know today in these moments, you can just quietly bow your head and surrender yourself to him. Today in these moments, you can just say, God, I've been running my life. I've been ruling my life. I've been, and it hasn't been going as well as I want it to. And so, God, I come to you in this moment of repentance and just say, God, you've shown us that Jesus is the victor. God, I give my life to him. You can do that right now in these moments. Or maybe you've been walking, him, walking with him, for me, like me, for some time. Maybe decades. Maybe years. Maybe only months. But you've been walking with the Lord for a portion of your life, and yet 
you know what it's like to have the enemy attack. You're not sure how to, how to combat him. You know what it's like to have sin just pounding at your door and temptation. You're not sure what to do. And today you want to just say, Jesus, I've been reminded that you are the victor. I've been reminded that you are above every ruler and authority and power. I've been reminded that no name anywhere can be invoked in this universe that can bring any threat or, or, or any type of, of, of challenge to your authority and power because you are the risen one. And say, Jesus, help me to live in light of that. Help me to live in light of that. So just in these moments, would you just pray? Just say, God, either save me, if that's you today, or God, just help me to live in light of who you are and what you've done. And just take a couple of moments and do that. And then we'll sing to our Savior as we close in song.